Today on Government Matters, a new job to fill in the White House for the new Biden administration. Senator Angus King on choosing a national cyber director. A new cloud contract at the Defense Department as big as Jedi and Dios. A look at where the money's going and why. And the number one story of the week, the future of the federal workforce. A bipartisan look at the new Schedule F. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The final draft of the National Defense Authorization Act includes a mandate for a new national cyber director. It's one of a number of amendments pitched by the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Senator Angus King, independent of Maine, is a co-chair of the commission. Senator King, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining me. I recall asking you the last time we were together, Senator, how you and your colleagues on the commission would make sure that those recommendations actually became actionized rather than just becoming a report on a shelf. I note a report from CyberScoop that says you got 26 of your recommendations in the National Defense Authorization Act out of 34 that you sought this year and 52 that are for Congress to make. Uh, it would be well within your rights, as the kids say, to dunk on me for that question, sir. How did you go about getting those recommendations into the NDAA so quickly, sir? Well, I would never dump on you for your question, Francis. That was a good question and a very legitimate one, given the track record of a lot of commissions. Uh, if, if we were a Major League Baseball player, we'd be holding out for a big contract next year based on our, our percentage. Uh, it was a lot of work. I, I think uh, the commission, and I give a great deal of credit to the staff, uh, made a decision early on that we were not only going to present recommendations to Congress, we were going to give them fully drafted bills in legislative language. So instead of leaving them to do the work, uh, we did it for them and said, here's the proposal, here's the language, all you got to do is say yes. And of course, there, was, there were amendments and there was a lot of work that went into it. But basically, we made that work uh, easy for them. It also helped, uh, Francis, that uh, three of the four uh, legislative members, uh, Jim Longevin in the House, uh, Mike Gallagher, who's my co-chair, and myself, were all on our respective armed services committees. Uh, so that helped us to work with uh, those important committees since the, the, uh, the, the, the vehicle, the, the bill that we were aiming for is the National Defense Act, which, by the way, uh, we just uh, voted through on Friday, so uh, this is a uh, this is a big deal, and and it was a heck of a lot of work. I'll give you one flavor. I'll give you one anecdote. In order to get those recommendations into the bill, we had to get 180 clearances from both sides of all kinds of committees on Capitol Hill, uh, both houses, in order to to make that happen. So. Um, it was really a, a monumental undertaking. And again, I'll go back to what I said at the beginning. I give a huge amount of credit to the staff for the work that they did with the staffs of the committees. And then, you know, they'd call us in when we needed an extra push. But uh, I'm very proud of what we've achieved. Senator, the most high profile of these recommendations that we've talked about on a number of occasions, both on the Sunday edition and the weekday edition of this program, is the creation of the job that I mentioned at the beginning, the National Cyber Director. Set that one aside for a moment. Are there others of these that you think can have a potential tremendous impact on the way that the executive branch does cybersecurity very quickly? 
Absolutely, uh, absolutely, Francis, and I and I think uh, we're we're going to be working on continuing uh, the the work. I mean, there's some that we didn't get in, but for example, there's a provision in that requires continuity of the economy planning. We have programs for continuity of government, but in a case of a catastrophic cyber attack, we're going to need continuity of the economy. I think the, the the best way I can put it is, and and I didn't coin this; someone else said it. If you add together all the provisions that are in this bill, this National Defense Act also is the most important piece of cyber legislation ever passed uh, in in this country. Uh, it is a well on the way to helping us to prepare. Uh, for uh, and prevent, I think that's important to add, prevent uh, cyber attacks. You're right, 26 of 52 is an impressive batting average. There, That means there are still 26 that you have to work on next year and in years out. What are some of the most important ones of those? And what would you like to see the Biden administration undertake uh, regarding cybersecurity beyond the implementation, the selection of a candidate, of a nominee to become the national cyber director? Well, I'm not going to let you slide over implementation so fast. One of my <laughs> mottos of life, Francis, is that execution is as important as vision. And we've provided the vision, but the execution is critically important. So working with the new administration on execution, for example, who is going to be the first national cyber director? Very important provision. But one of the things that isn't in the bill that we want to work on next year is a recognition of the international dimension of this problem. This is not just a national problem. This is a worldwide problem. And so one of our recommendations is the creation of a new assistant secretary of state for cyber, whose job it will be to work with international organizations, international bodies, setting standards, norms, guardrails for cyber. And for example, if there's a, a cyber attack from, a, from a, a, a group of individuals or a country, multilateral sanctions are much more effective than unilateral just america only sanctions so that's an example of where the international cooperation is so important and i want somebody we want somebody at the state department who gets up every morning thinking how are we going to advance the the cause of cybersecurity worldwide and that's i think one of our most important recommendations that hasn't yet uh uh, hit the Congress. Senator King, um, 30 seconds left. Chris Painter, who did a similar job in the State Department during the Obama administration, was on this program talking about that capacity just a, a week or so ago. Is that what you envision, and is that something the Biden administration could say, we like that idea and we want to just do it and not wait for Congress? Well, I'm not sure whether they can create the position. They can certainly put someone in the in the State Department thinking about and working on these issues. We think it should be an assistant secretary of state to give it the status and the, the kind of uh, uh, the strength in order to represent the country uh, around the world in these international discussions. So um, I, I think this is a combination where if, if they want to get started on it, that's great. Uh, and we're going to give them the tools to make it more effective. Senator Angus King, thank you very much for joining me as always. Francis, great pleasure. Talk to you later, man. Up next, a new multi-billion dollar contract for IT consolidation at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what makes this contract different and how to avoid protests and problems. You're watching ABC7.
Welcome back. The Defense Information Systems Agency is taking bids on its new Defense Enclave Services contract for IT consolidation. That contract could be worth up to $11.2 billion. Lauren Williams is a staff writer for FCW. Andrew Eversden is federal IT and cybersecurity reporter at the Federal Times, both of them covering this contract. Welcome both of you. Lauren, I start with you. What exactly is involved in this contract? What is DISA buying here? So this contract is a contract vehicle for several different business operations uh, functions. This includes email, video, chat, just anything that you would use on a day-to-day basis for the fourth estate or the defense agencies and field activities. So that's pretty much everything outside of the Pentagon, um, like DISA itself. Andrew, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. What's the significance of the fact that this is a contract for the fourth estate, not for the branches and so on? Yeah, these are sort of the uh, maybe forgotten agencies uh, that are, have vital importance, like the Missile Defense Agency, the Defense Logistics Agency. Uh, one of the moves here is IT savings, uh, reducing, increasing in- integration for these uh very important uh, networks uh, and saving money, standardizing uh, IT and improving cybersecurity. This becomes the third major contract that the Defense Department is working on an enterprise-wide basis. JEDI and DOS are both contracts that the two of you have covered. Lauren, what what are the lessons that we have seen the department work through on this contract and what are the lessons potentially they can learn from DOS and JEDI? I think one of the interesting things about this particular contract is that they delayed the release of the RFP so that they could do yet another review before releasing it. And I think they're, I think DOD is taking seriously the controversies that have surrounded uh, Jedi and, and Dios, and they want to kind of be able to show their work in the case that there might be um, future problems. This contract, that contract review that Lauren referred to, Andrew, went all the way up to the chief information officer of the department, Dana Deasy. Is that your sense as well, that he just wants to make sure I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and that they can avoid kind of the the redos, the protests, and so on that they've experienced with the other two? Yeah, absolutely. On a roundtable with reporters last week, um, acting deputy CIO for Information Enterprise, Daniel Metz, uh, told reporters and it was very um, forceful that this was just a normal review. They were dotting T's, crossing I's, as you said, to avoid some of the issues that they've had with JEDI and uh, the defense or the DOS contract. One of the challenges, Lauren, of this contract and potentially avoiding that is they're going again to a, a single provider. Um, that mm-hmm. seems to be the big sticking point that the companies that don't get the all or nothing deals want to get involved in them somehow. Are you watching that as a potential sticking point for protests uh, once this contract's awarded? Absolutely. This is a lot of money. $11 $11 billion is a lot of money, and a lot of companies would like a piece of that. And I think what's been shown through JEDI, through DIOS, through, through Enclave, is that DOD really wants continuity of services delivered, which is why they're going for the single provider model. And that's going to ruffle some feathers. So I, we don't know what's going to happen. We're going to have to wait to see with the protests, but I definitely think that it'll probably come. 
Do we have a sense, Lauren, of who the potential bidders might be here? There were the kind of the usual suspects in the Jedi contract and the Dios contract. Is there a group of people, of companies that we can expect to see as kind of the primary candidates for this uh, contract? I think you can expect to see the normal players. I mean, again, we're, we're talking about Microsoft Office-like solutions. So any company that can offer that type of suite um, is going to be probably interested in competing for this contract. Andrew, one of the department's uh, kind of methods of operation for big weapon systems is to parcel them out. And the theory is that we keep the defense industrial base primed by kind of spreading the work around. Is it reasonable to think that that might be the case here as well, uh, based on what we've seen with the awarding of JEDI and DOS, at least as far as those award processes have gotten? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the uh, important things in the RFP is this 25% small business uh, sort of requirement for subcontracting. I think that's uh, just uh, officials that I've talked to have been very adamant that small businesses are a key part of their uh, their mission and they need as many providers as possible to help them out. Andrew, what will you follow as this uh, process plays out as the bids come in and, and awards happen? Is it the timeline slip? as we've seen with the other two big contracts that we've discussed here, or are there other elements of this that you're going to pay close attention to? Uh, I'm paying attention to protests, protests, protests. This is uh, $11 billion, a billion dollars more than the Jedi Cloud had the problems that it's had, uh, and Dio's had a similar similar issue. So I think that we will, are very likely to see uh, contract this contract be protested uh, in the next few months or over the course of the acquisition process. I'll assume, Lauren, that your uh, item to watch is, uh, the number one item to watch is protests. What's number two? Number two is going to be the cybersecurity aspect. Uh, like Andrew said earlier, a big part of this is to lessen the uh, the attack surface, to make uh, the networks more secure by bringing all of these defense agencies with field activities onto one network. So I'll be watching for how they implement uh, the new cybersecurity standards, CMMC, um, and how that goes forth. Lauren, Andrew, thanks very much for joining me. Great to have you here. Up next, the number one story of the week, straight ahead on Government Matters, the future of the federal workforce under Schedule F. You're watching ABC7. And now the number one story of the week, the future of the federal workforce. Several members of Congress, including Republican James Comer of Kentucky and experts from outside the government, including one from the Heritage Foundation, have come out in support of Schedule F. President Trump created Schedule F to make it easier to fire federal employees. 49 officials from administrations of both parties signed an open letter this week against the implementation of the executive order. Two of the signatories are Danny Werfel, managing director and partner at Boston Consulting Group, former controller at OMB for Barack Obama, and Alan Berman, president at Jefferson Solutions, former administrator of federal procurement policy for George H.W. Bush. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Al, you first. Why'd you sign this letter? I, uh, thanks very much for having me, Francis. Good seeing you again. I signed the letter because I, I thought it was a mistake. I thought it was misguided to go down this path for an institution like OMB that uh, over the years has provided such uh, great support 
to the White House and to any president. And uh, you really have uh, institutional memory from that uh, organization that uh, is, is, is helping uh, presidents of, of both parties figure out how to get their budgets done, how to manage their legislative agenda, how to deal with management issues across the government. And I think by turning this into a different kind of an organization, you're going to invite different sorts of folks who will be looking to come into the organization. A lot of that memory and a lot of those skill sets will be lost. Danny, welcome. It's good to see you again. Uh, same question to you. Why'd you sign this letter? Well, actually, I remember my first day at OMB as a civil servant and in orientation, you learn and you're trained that you don't work for the president, you work for the institution of the presidency when you're at OMB. As a civil servant, you, you set politics aside and you drive to the right policy outcomes. And my big concern with this executive order and classification is it would position OMB employees to, uh, to be incentivized to follow politics rather than policy. And it's the wrong outcome for the organization and therefore the wrong outcome for the American people. So, Danny, you get at uh, the point that I wanted to make from uh, the words of Congressman Comer. We invited him to join us. His schedule didn't permit uh, him to be on the program this week. But he said this in October. Prior to the growth of the executive branch, policymaking positions were traditionally held by appointees. However, with the growth of the bureaucracy, career civil servants came to hold the positions. Civil servants are not appointed and as such are not held accountable by the voters, the president, or anyone else. This executive order will strengthen accountability by requiring civil servants holding policymaking positions to be accountable to the president. Danny, I'll start with you. Al, I would like your input as well. What do you agree with and what do you disagree with about the congressman's statement there, Danny? Well, I disagree with the notion that uh, that civil servants are, quote unquote, policymakers. The administrations put in political officials who have the ultimate determination on the policies that will be advanced. And the role of the civil servant is to provide all the right analytics, evidence, uh, institutional knowledge to support those policymakers. Their, their, their role is really to focus on what are the right public policy and public administration outcomes to guide the policymakers who are controlled by the political party. So I think what's misguided about the, the statement is this notion that civil servants are driving policies versus the political layer of the government. Al, what's your takeaway from the statement by Congressman Comer? Yes, and I, I would agree with Danny on, on the same point. I think you're, you're, you have a layer of political appointees at the senior level of the organization. I'm going to talk specifically about OMB, and I spent some 20 years at that institution. I was both a career person and then I was a political appointee. And, and you, as a career person, you're an analyst. You're providing advice to uh, your senior leadership on how best to carry out the mission that you're being given. And uh, there, there was a comment I remember when I first joined the organization that said, you know, if, if the president decided that he wanted to figure out a way to take 10 tons of manure and put them on the steps of the old executive office building, now the Eisenhower executive office building, he'd go to OMB to figure out how best to do it, how they do it most efficiently and effectively. And I think that's 
what you're talking about. You're talking about skilled people who know their jobs, similar to having skilled people in NIH or, or CDC, these other institutions, where it's important to have that set of skills and that institutional memory to make that organization function well for any president. We have about a minute left, so 30 seconds apiece, and Al, I'll start with you. We've talked about the potential downsides. Do you see any potential upsides to this, or is it all negative? Well, you know, I think anybody who's worked in the government for any length of time knows it's a heck of a, a deal trying to hire people that you want and trying to get rid of people who are dead wood. My view is there's very little dead wood in an organization like OMB. People come there and thrive in it. People want information yesterday. If you don't love that life, you're not going to be staying around. And so I don't think, I don't think it really applies or affects uh, the, the OMB staff in any way. Danny, any potential upside to Schedule F, or do you see it as all downside? All downside. Um, look, the day Mitch Daniels arrived for the Bush administration, the civil servant workforce at OMB was excited to get started. The day Peter Orzag arrived for the Obama administration as the OMB director, the civil servant workforce at OMB was excited and ready to get started. And I'm really concerned that this schedule and this classification uh, changes the construct for OMB employees who it's in the brochure to serve whatever administration comes in, the best public policy analysis, and that's the way we should move going forward. Danny Werfel, Al Berman, thanks both very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. You get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GOVMATTERS to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.